0: Well, this evening, I have to confess to you that I, uh, I was actually planning to uh, bring to you an entirely different sermon uh, about midway through the week. And then the Lord just really moved on my heart. And uh, I wanted to sort of bring this sermon to your attention this evening because I haven't really been able to stop thinking about this uh, all of this past week. Um, this past week marks the two-year anniversary uh, since my mom's mental health collapsed back in 2018. It was a run-of-the-mill evening. Uh, Natalie may remember this. Uh, we were living in Davie, Florida. And uh, normal, normal evening. And I get a call from my sister, which I still to this day think is one of the weirdest calls I've ever received from her. In which she proceeds to tell me that mom is not right. Uh, something's off and we have to take her to the hospital and it would be best if you would fly up and see, see her and be with us. And I remember just being so confused uh, after that phone call because I wasn't thinking anything. In fact, we had just seen my mom uh, a couple weeks prior to that. We had gone on a trip and uh, seen some friends in in Georgia, and we had veered off, and this was in May of 2018, we had seen my family, and then in June, I get this phone call, and I had no idea what to expect, because nothing was the same, uh, really, after that moment, and uh, nothing really could have prepared me for, uh, and prepared our family for what lie ahead of us. I remember flying from Florida to South Carolina really quickly. And soon after I arrived in South Carolina, uh, my sister picked me up from the airport. And it was a very um, weird drive just because she didn't know what to say to me. And I didn't know what to say to her. And I was quickly ushered with my dad to go see my mom who had been admitted into a mental health facility already by that point. And once there... uh, I saw my mom like I had—I never want to see again. She was in the midst of a terrible, terrible affliction of depression, and I saw my mom in front of me and my dad for a long time in a way that i, I don't want to return to. But yeah, I think, and at another time, is good to return to, as I hope to bring to your attention this morning. I remember I remember I returned home from visiting my mom that day and we came back to my cousin's house, my uncle's house, where everyone was kind of huddling up, trying to be together, praying together, just kind of just being there for one another. And we were trying to make sense of everything. And I remember walking outside, calling Natalie, and I remember I remember just weeping on that phone. I remember just calling her up and I don't know if I said anything coherent other than the fact that I have no idea what to make of this moment. I remember calling her and I just, I don't know if we're going to get my mom back. I don't know, because the person I saw that day in the facility was not my mom. It was my mom, but not really her. And I just wept. And as, I don't mean to sound pretentious, but as a writer, I just had to write out all my thoughts I remember writing after that. I wrote this paragraph. Never have I ever wept like I did last week. This was in June of 2018. Never have I prayed like I did last week. A flood of emotions ranging from intense anger to deep sadness to hushed courage have raced through my mind like reckless abandon. My eyes are tired. Not due to lack of sleep, though that may be true, but because I've cried them dry. I don't know if I have any more tears left. Whatever turmoil has dispirited my mom's ability to think clearly has reached its ugly fingers to crush the rest of us, too. One by one, I see the harrowing grief of my family as we sit helplessly. Paralyzed by misery, we pray. It's the only thing we know to do, and it's the only thing we can do. And we are now two years removed from that moment. And I relay that to you because it's a moment and a time and a season in my life that I go back to often because it has been formative for me in my faith. I will tell you this, that I am not the pastor that I am to you uh, without this moment, this time in my life. Because I see my mom, I see her now, and she's a living, breathing testimony of God's grace. Now, uh, incredibly, miraculously, uh, through the Holy Spirit's influence on her and my family's support of her, she actually just got done teaching some ladies' ministries classes at my dad's church, if you can believe that. Two years removed from this incredible uh, battle with depression. I cannot express how grateful I am to uh, now on this side of things to having gone through that. It is. Was definitely formative for me. And I share that with you. Because. I'm still baffled by all of it. It Actually. I I called my dad earlier this week. And we were just kind of reminiscing. And chatting about that time. And it was just. It still doesn't make sense. I still have no real clue. Other than what it's done for me personally. In terms of my faith journey or whatever. From that aspect. I can see myself having grown. From this ordeal. But. In and of itself, especially in concern, as it concerns my mom, I have no idea, zero clue, why God would allow this to happen. It's fractured some relationships, ones that I thought were strong. It's fractured them, which has saddened me. It's strengthened others. I think it's done a world of good in, in, a, in only a way that God can do it in terms of my mom's life. But I still don't really know why he did it. And I think that's kind of the point. Because suffering never really makes sense, does it? Suffering never really appears logical in the moment. In the moment, it appears completely illogical and nonsensical and completely out of left field. And I think that's entirely the point because the suffering that you and I endure on a daily basis is both inescapable. We can't escape the suffering of this world, but it's also abnormal. We, we cannot escape suffering because our world suffers under the weight of sin that it brought on itself. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they brought sin into the world. And we are feeling all of the terrible and, and awful effects and consequences of it on a daily basis. But also suffering, I would say this, is, is doubly painful and grievous. Because th- we, whenever you see someone suffering, you are made to remember this. Or you should possibly remember this. That this is not how the world should be. That when someone suffers, this is a perfect sign. That this is not how God intended our world to be. It's almost like a sermon. That this world needs a savior. When you see someone suffering... You can know for sure that this world is broken under suffering and death. Pastor Nathan, he he first introduced me to this this way to describe pain and suffering and death, which is uh, that they are alien invaders, which I like because they don't belong here. They've invaded the world that God spoke into existence and called to good. And they have invaded and ruined the world by our doing, by Adam and Eve's doing. Uh, Actually, Alexander McLaren, one of my favorite preachers to read, he writes, Sorrow, tears, and death, and all other ills that flesh is heir to are an alien, an abnormal tumor upon creation as God meant it. That's what they are. They weren't supposed to be here. When God created everything, he called it very good" in Genesis 1, and then Adam and Eve disobeyed, and they brought all of this alien uh, growth with them, this sin and suffering and death. And what God had called good and perfect was now corrupted. And we are feeling the effects to that even day, which is just to say that we uh, don't understand suffering. Why? Because we weren't created to. We weren't created to understand suffering. God created us in a world that was meant to be perfectly harmonious and in fellowship with him. Though, what I just kind of tried to explain is uh, might help answer where suffering came from. Suffering came from the fall. But I would say even now we are dealing and we are still plagued by the why of suffering. I asked why after my mom's suffering and I continue to. And perhaps you do too with things that God has allowed to come into your life. Why? Why would, he, why would he allow this? Why does God allow people to suffer? Why does God permit people to go through ordeals and trials and seasons of intense grief and sorrow and loss? It doesn't make sense. Why is God letting me go through this? Why is he letting me live through this? Why doesn't he just take this suffering out of my life? The why questions of suffering, I think, are some of the oldest questions that have ever been asked by man. Which brings me to this book that you have opened in front of you, Job. Because this is generally considered the oldest book that you have in the Bible, at least the oldest written book. It's always considered to be the earliest book, not chronologically, or earliest book chronologically, even though it appears right here before the Psalms. And it's fitting because this book deals with suffering. On a very real level. It deals with, uh, with intense suffering. And what's frustrating. What's frustrating about this book. Is the fact that you can read all 42 chapters. And if you read it. Hoping to find. In quote answer to life's sufferings. You will not find it. Which is so incredibly annoying. If I have to be honest with you. You have an entire book about suffering, and God never tells us why. Job is never given a reason why he is made to go through the things that he has gone through. In fact, that's sort of the point of the book. (laughs) It's conversations between Job and his, quote, friends. As his friends try to uh, figure out something that Job has done that has caused all of this turmoil and wreckage and heartache in his life. Surely, Job, you have done something to make God mad, and now he's punishing you. And of course, it's a silly conclusion to come to, and it's one that is not true. And it's one that, that if you read the whole book, they they never come to a conclusion. There's never a reason for the loss. Go with me to the start of the book, just to refresh your mind. I don't mean to be uh, one to just... Wallow in sorrow, but I want you to look at what happens in Job's life. You may be familiar with this. By the beginning, Job has literally everything. He is considered to be the richest man in the world uh, at his time when he was living in the world. Uh, as it says in verse 1 there, Job 1 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very large household. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. And his sons who would go and feast in their houses each upon his appointed day. And would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings and according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. You can see he's a devout man, a faithful man, a rich man, a a profitable man, a man who is incredibly blessed. And yet behind the scenes of all this, we are given this interesting, fascinating uh, look into this wager that is made in the heavens. Look at verse 6. There was a day... When the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Satan here in this text literally means the adversary. So the adversary came among them as well. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. only do not lay a hand on this person on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. See Satan comes to God and says basically you 've blessed him so much that he only is faithful and devout and following you because you have given him all these blessings. But if you take away these things from his life, he will curse you to your face he will Fall away from his love. So God allows this to happen. Notice that. God allows this to happen. You can touch all that he has. Just do not touch his person. So verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing, the donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabaeans raided them and took them away. Indeed they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So some livestock and some servants. That's not too bad I suppose. But while he was still speaking verse 16. Another also came and said the fire of God fell from heaven. And burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. More of Job's servants, more sheep, consumed more bad news while he was still speaking. Another also came and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels and took them away. Yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. More bad news, more servants die, more camels are taken by these marauders. And yet look... While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people. And they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Another messenger. Another another, uh, message of bad news. And here the worst news of all. That all of his sons and daughters, they have been tragically killed in this accident. In this terrible fate of a tornado that has swept across the land. At this point, let me tell you what I would be doing. I would be questioning God. That's for sure what I would be doing. What in the world, God? What, what's going on? First, it was some, some sheep. I can deal with sheep. There were some camels, those were a little bit pricier. Now you've killed my only family, my only sons and daughters? And look at Job. Job is consumed with grief. Then Job arose and tore his robe, verse 20, and shaved his head. And he fell to the ground and worshipped And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with anything, with any wrong. I tell you, that's way unlike what I would be doing. That's way unlike what I would be doing. And yet, Job here, even though all has been taken away from him, his faith was not taken away. He worshiped God. He worships the Lord after all of this suffering and loss. Satan returns. Go back to chapter 2, verse 1. And again, there was a day. You'll notice these verses will sound very familiar to the very uh, to verse 6 of chapter 1 came to present themselves before the lord and satan came also among them to present himself to the lord and the lord said to satan from where do you come so satan answered the lord and said from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it then the lord said to satan have you considered my servant job that there is none like him on the earth a blameless and upright man one who fears god and shuns evil and he still holds fast his integrity although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said skin for skin yes all that a man has he will give for his life but stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his face and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan behold he is in your hand but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So now this Now, we have a new wager. Satan comes back to the Lord, ups the ante, changes sort of the rules of the deal. And he swears by the fact that surely if you touch his body and you decimate his person, then he will surely curse you. You've just taken away things, material possessions. You've taken away his family and he could get by, so to speak, without that perhaps. But if you touch his body... He's going to curse you, God. So God lets him. Only he cannot touch his life in that he would, can take it away. And look at what Satan brings upon Job. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a pot shirt with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept a good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Incredible testimony from Job. And the testimony is here given to us, I think, to make us see what God can do through a sufferer. His life has quickly gone from the greatest in all of the East to one that we would never trade for. We would never trade for Job's life and the type of sadness and sorrow that he has already made to endure. And imagine being one of Job's friends. What would you say to him? Can you imagine trying to find the words to talk to this man who has just been through all of this? What would you think about him? Maybe you would think like they thought. What did you do? What did you do to cause this? Surely there was something that you had to have done. So it's just what they try to determine throughout the rest of this book. From this sort of moment on. They have all these conversations dealing with the ethics of suffering. And and surely you had to do something to cause this. But imagine being Job at this time. Imagine being Job. A devout man. A faithful man. And all of this comes into your life. All of this sorrow, the loss of your possessions, the loss of your family, the loss of your, uh, your, your prestige, your renown, the loss of everything. Even your significant other is now saying you should just curse God and die. It doesn't sound like a life we would want to have. It would be easy to conclude, just as his, quote, friends did, that God was surely mad at him. That there was something that he did to make God angry. But all of this is just foolish logic. It's foolish because suffering. Let me tell you this. Is never caused by God's anger. Suffering is never caused by God's anger. Actually it is allowed I think. I think uh, having been through it. Suffering is allowed so that we may run. And cling to him's grace all the tighter. Because when you are brought To where you have nothing left to hold on to? What is the only thing you can hold on to? As it says in Hebrews 6.19. An anchor sure and strong. Which is hope in Jesus Christ. The problem I think oftentimes with at least how we conceive of suffering. uh, How we conceive of pain and all these sorts of things. Is that they don't always have an immediate sort of cause to which we can point to and blame. That frustrates us. It frustrates me. I want there to be a cause. Let me try to explain this and and rationalize it and try and reason it out so I can find the one thing to get mad at and blame for all of this suffering, for all this frustration. And just like Job, who was given none, no reason, no explanations, no rationale for the incredible turmoil that's on display. We are confronted with the same thing. That we aren't often always, if ever, given a reason that this caused this which leads to this bad thing that's happened. In fact, going back to our text in Job 38. You know what he does? From chapters 38 through 41. You know what Job's comfort is from God on high? God's comfort to him is just this. Is that you aren't God and I'm God. He takes them through all of these rhetorical questions. Where were you when I was forming the world? Where were you when I was spanning out the seas and making them stop? As he says there in verse 11 that you can go no farther. He's literally speaking to them. You can't go any further than this. Where were you when I formed this world and this planet? Where were you when I was doing all of these things behind the scenes in the cosmos? These chapters are a laundry list of rhetorical questions in which we too, like Job, have to sit in silence and just admit to the fact that we weren't there. Of course Job wasn't there when all these things were happening. Of course Job wasn't at this moment when God was speaking and worlds were being formed and created. We weren't there. All of which is to remind us that there is no one, there is absolutely no one like our God. Our God is unlike any other God, any other person in the universe. Because he is absolutely sovereign over every single thing that comes into your life. Yes, even suffering. The suffering that doesn't make sense. He's sovereign over that. The suffering that seems so incredibly just dumb to be a part of. We were a couple of weeks ago. It was Monday, so it's usually the day I kind of take off to be with just family. We were driving into town on 61. And what happens? We hit a nail. A random nail in the middle of 61. I have no idea where it came from. But we hit it. We found it. We luckily we made it to, to Heitzman's and he got us got the tire changed. And it's not like suffering, but it's annoying. <laughs> and to think that God why? Why did God let that happen? We had all these plans, we're going to go do all these errands, and blah, 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 blah. And then all of that has to get, you know, sidelined because we didn't get all those things accomplished. And it's like, what? Why would God allow this random, it was this random nail to be found by my tire going on 61 into some area I don't know, it just it still doesn't make sense. But even from that little amount of inconvenience, it's not suffering, it's just inconvenience That God is sovereign over. Yes, He is also sovereign over what we talked about at the beginning. My mom's season of depression. He's sovereign over that too. He's sovereign over both. And both don't make sense. And we are given the same comfort that Job is given that I'm still God and I'm still on my throne. And I was there when the worlds were formed. I'm going to be there when the worlds end. And look at what Job does. Look at, look at the last chapter. Go to chapter 42. After all of these questions, all of these rhetorical questions that are meant to impress upon Job that you aren't God. Look at what he says. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything. And that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You ask, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me. Things which I did not know. Listen please and let me speak. You said I will question you and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eyes see you. Therefore I abhor myself and repent. Repent. And dust and ashes. In the rest of this chapter. Job is restored. Even more to even greater degrees. Than what God has uh, assured. What God blessed him with at the beginning of his life. So God takes him through all of this. He takes away everything. Job seemingly learns the fact that God is God. And then God restores him to everything and then some. Seems kind of weird that God would do that. And the lesson I think is this the lesson for me, because I'm really preaching to myself, is it's meant to bring us to the same point. I think suffering always leads us to the same point that we aren't God, that we aren't in control over anything. In fact, uh, let me read you this quick paragraph. This is from one of my favorite writers, Paul Tripp. He writes in, his book, in, the, in the, one of his books, Physical suffering exposes the delusion of personal self-sufficiency. If you and I had the kind of control that we fall into thinking that we have, none of us would ever go through anything difficult. Independence is a delusion that is quickly exposed by suffering. We think we're in control of all these things. We think we're in control of how the world is turning. And how the economy is being ordered. And yet God is in control of everything. Why? Because God is God. And we are not. And that is incredibly comforting. That is incredibly reassuring. Because life. Life is going to be chaotic. And messy. And hard. It's going to be. Filled with bad news and uncertainty and ominous headlines. It's going to be filled with storms and seasons of trial and suffering and loss. And that isn't meant to just make you despair. It's just meant to tell you reality that life is going to be hard. And there's no getting around that fact. But this, the good news that speaks to us in the middle of all, all of these storms of life. Is this, isn't that notwithstanding? Irregardless of the ferocity of the storm that comes into your life that smacks you around a little bit, or maybe a lot, are these three things God is with us in the storm, God is smiling at us in the storm, and God is speaking to us in the storm. No matter what you go through, you can be sure of those things. That he is always with you in whatever stormy season of life, of suffering that you go through, he is with you. You can also be sure that he is smiling upon you, which I will explain in a minute. And you can also be sure that he is speaking to you through his word. In every season of life, you can be sure of those three things. And that might not seem like what you want to hear because what do we want we want explanations and reasons and ways out like job sometimes we're not given that and the message from god to job and to us is the same is that the same god who allows these storms to come into our life controls the storms too The same God who allows these things to come into our life that frustrate us. That causes so much stress and anxiety and worry and loss and sadness and crying and weeping. He is controlling them too. So even as all this tragedy comes into our lives. We can be reassured of God's smiling face upon us. I say that not because I think he's sadistic and that he loves suffering. No, it's the smile that ought to reassure us of that very fact. That he's the God over the storm and he's the God in the storm and he's our deliverer from the storm. And it's that same God who walks with us while we are in it. He smiles because he knows that even though life appears to be a, a, a seemingly random string of suffering, he's the one through whom suffering is put to death. We were hinting at that this morning. But that by Jesus' own suffering, suffering is put to bed, it's put to rest. That when Jesus suffers all of the anguish on the cross. He reassures us of what? That there is going to be a day when suffering is going to be no more. That all death is going to be wiped out. That all tears are going to be wiped from every eye. there is going to be no more crying. And no more sadness. No more heartbreak. No more grief. No more pain. All of that is going to go away. Because Jesus put it away. He put it to death. And this... Is what we can cling to. Is that notwithstanding the suffering that you're going through right now, is that it won't win? Your suffering cannot win. Why? Because God has already won. God has already won in his son, Jesus Christ. He's won. Paul Tripp again, he writes this: He is the one who not only comforts you, God. It produces beautiful things in you and through you out of what you didn't invite into your life and don't really want in your life and out of what doesn't seem good at all. That's God's pattern. He produces beautiful things in you and through you out of things that you don't want, that have things that don't make sense, out of things that don't seem good at all. When I was calling Natalie on the phone when I just came from seeing my mom, that did not seem good at all. That seemed actually the opposite, the complete polar opposite. It seemed like my world was just cracking my mom, the steady, faithful follower of God, a pastor's wife who has been so faithful in every single aspect I can imagine, is now being made to not have her mind think clearly. God, this doesn't seem good. And you know, I can testify to you that in my own personal soul, in my own faith, that God has brought beautiful things out of that. I'm closer to my mom than I think I've ever been, than my dad than I've ever been. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that Natalie got to see me cry because she was there with me through that. And this is the ultimate promise of the gospel, my friends, which is that all of this suffering and death, that all of this sorrow, And struggle is being put to death. It has been put to death already by Jesus' blood. And that, like it says in Romans chapter 8, that creation is groaning for a redeemer. That one has already come. And one day he's going to make everything new. He's going to make everything new. This whole world is going to be made new. By what? By the power of Jesus' blood. All the chaos and the violence and the injustice. And the sadness and the sorrow. That we see on the news. Every single day. All of that is is going to go away. Why? Because of what Jesus has already done. Because of what he has already promised us. He is going to do. In the future. So. You know all those times in the Gospels when Jesus says to his disciples and all the times throughout the Psalms, don't be afraid. That to me, I think he says with a smile. As if to say, watch this. Watch what I can do through this mess. Watch the type of beauty that I can make out of this garbage. Watch the type of hope that I can bring out of this loss. Because that's what God does. That's what God does all the time. That's what he has done with me. That's what he's done with every beautiful sinner that he has saved by his grace. He's brought them out of garbage and brought them into grace. This is what he does with us in our suffering. Let us pray.